0: Well, good morning hope you're having a good new year Um, if in fact you are having a good new year then you're actually um, bucking the trend apparently um, I don't know whether you've seen this but apparently January is the most depressing month of the year a month where we feel at our lowest not me my birthday is actually in this uh, month it's actually um, this Wednesday a little date for your diaries I know, um, I know John Bodley, when he was speaking just before Christmas, he uh, said if anyone wanted to get him a birthday present, they could invite someone to the carol service. The carol service obviously happened now, so if you just want to get me a real present, that's fine. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we're in the midst of the most depressing month of the year, and the most depressing day of the year, apparently, is next Monday. Um, I was reading this the other day. It's actually uh, an equation for it, which I think is coming up on the screen. Um, yeah. Sort of scientifically dubious, I think the uh, article said. But um, anyway, it takes into account four things. They reckon four things. One, the weather and daylight hours. Two, distance from Christmas. You know, gutted it's just ended and miles away from the next Christmas. That can come down now if you want. Um, Gutted it's ended, miles away from next Christmas. Three, um, debt levels um, as a result of Christmas. Uh, and four, failed New Year's resolutions. Um, the hope, you know, that New Year offered for turning whatever it is around, um, losing some weight, eating better, picking up an instrument, whatever it was, that hope just turned out to be a false hope. In fact, uh, my wife and I, we decided, uh, New Year's resolution, we thought, you know, why don't we do one of those little Bible reading plans? don't know whether you guys, some of you would have done that, but through a year or whatever, and we thought, great, great idea. And... Um, and so I'd printed off a little sheet to go through it and make sure we were on it. And um, January the 1st through the 3rd came, and I'd, we'd already missed it. We were three days late by the 3rd of January. <laughs> that is unbelievable. So I'm on catch-up, it's going okay, but um, a bit of a way to go. But all these things, those four things, apparently peak at um, what is called Blue Monday, next Monday. And, um, but I think I have the solution. I've thought about it and um, it's something that always cheers me up, makes me feel happier no matter what else is going on. Um, I think there's a little pitch coming up. Cinnamon buns. (laughs) Cinnamon buns. Next Monday, we could all take cinnamon buns to work with us for everyone. You cannot have a blue Monday when it starts with getting a cinnamon bun. Everyone's resolution to eating better has gone to pot anyway, so you might as well. But on a more serious note, um, this genuinely can be a difficult time of year for people, for many Christmas may have been a difficult time and, uh, and in fact for a lot of us maybe that sort of feeling of, of lowness isn't even just a seasonal thing but can be an ongoing struggle. Every one of us at some time or another will have experienced the highs and lows, the ups and downs that come with just normal life. Perhaps you're aware of that in yourself, you know, in your quieter moments when the noise and the busyness of life is absent, just a a slight lowness. And it it got me thinking about uh, about joy. The dictionary defines joy as a feeling of great pleasure and happiness, and it ties it to words like gladness or delight. And um, it all sounds great, but it also sounds momentary, fleeting. You know, it's something, a feeling that comes and goes. And I think, if we're honest, that is probably, regularly, our experience of it. We have moments of joy, moments of joy. I remember um, when our, for example, when our first son, Reuben, was born. Here he is. Um, And it was a moment of huge joy. You know, actually, the moment of his birth was pretty horrific. I think I blocked the memory through trauma. Um, I don't think joy was my initial emotion. I think I was trying to just hold it together. Um, anyway, but then he was, this little bundle was passed to me in a little towel, and it was joy. It was amazing. And I remember the same with our second son, Ezra. I remember, um, you know, getting married, the wedding day, major moment of joy. Um, or maybe I think back to, I can remember a holiday in the south of France a couple of years ago, just a great holiday. We can all think of moments of joy almost like looking at our lives and picking out like it's almost like the highlights reel from our lives. But do you ever wonder whether joy could or should be anything more than that? Does it have to be so momentary, seasonal? Does it have to be tied to experiences, good good holidays? Does it have to disappear with the start of January? Well, um... I want to look at some bits in the Bible today, because the Bible actually talks about joy a lot. The word, um, the word joy alone, not even looking at its synonyms, but the word joy itself appears over 200 times, and we, it's all over the place. We read things like in Romans chapter 14. Uh, Paul, who's writing, he says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, the, what God wants this place, this world to look like, is a place full of peace and joy. Or Psalm 16, the psalmist writes this of God's presence, In your presence, he says, is fullness of joy. Or John 15, Jesus speaking, he says this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full Or again, in Psalm 4, the psalmist writes this, speaking of God. You, God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. Or finally, James 1. James writes this, count it joy, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Joy when you meet trials. The picture we begin to get as we look at the Bible and the way it talks about joy is a picture of joy that has a lot less to do with the ups and downs of our circumstances that isn't just dependent on a new present or a good holiday or whatever it is for you, you fill in the blank. What does joy depend on for you? But the picture the Bible paints is of a joy which is robust, more permanent, more residing, more substantial, more fulfilling. A joy that, as that final verse in James we looked at then looks at, says, is a joy that uh, can be present in and alongside trouble. A joy that isn't just momentary. So the Bible's over and over, it has this picture of joy, but it's also the picture um, that we get from um, the stories of Christians over the centuries. There's loads and loads of these sort of stories, but here's just a few little examples. Um, joy that resides even in the worst of situations. This guy, um, he's called John Huss, and he was a Christian leader in the 14th century and was burnt at the stake for his faith. And it's written of him that um, as the flames engulfed him, he sang to God, he sang this old hymn, Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy on me. What sort of people sing at the stake? Or there's a story, not that picture, uh, or there's a story in, um, in the 1800s of four missionaries, four missionary Christians in Madagascar who were condemned to be burnt alive. And as they were on their way to the place of execution, they sang, the reports say they sang all the way along the road. And as they arrived and as the firewood was being fastened to the posts to burn them, they sang again this song, there is a blessed land where we shall be happy. Our rest will never be disturbed. They know no sorrow there. Or maybe even more recently, you might have heard this in the news, Um, Andrew Chan, he was an Australian, and he'd been caught smuggling uh, drugs into Indonesia. He had uh, 10 years, he was given in prison with um, capital punishment at the end of it. And during those 10 years, he became a Christian and began teaching and preaching about Jesus, telling everyone about Jesus. And one article um, on him puts it this way, it says, Despite the protests from across the globe, the authorities decided to uphold the death penalties. But when the day came for them to face the firing squad, something extraordinary happened. The prisoners declined the offer to wear blindfolds and instead stood and faced their executors. According to the witnesses, they recited the Lord's Prayer, embraced one another and sang two songs. One, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And the other, 10,000 reasons. Some of you who are here regularly will know that song. We sing it. They sang those two songs before their voices were drowned out by gunfire. You know the final verse of that song, 10,000 reasons. On that day when my strength is failing, when the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and forevermore. Bless the Lord oh my soul. Isn't that amazing? I mean, what sort of people sing in the face of sorrow? In fact, you might even remember, some of you, but just last year, um, the Bishop of Baghdad, Andrew White, stood on this stage. You might remember it. And um, he had been through a horrific situation in Iraq with his, um, with his congregation, many of his congregation being killed, persecution, um, just fleeing, A horrendous time and he sang here and spoke to us, and um, uh, he, he, he spoke of a number of things, but uh, I remember very clearly one moment where he stood here, and many of you remember it, and he sang, he said, this is a song that we sing in our church at home in Baghdad, this is a song that we sing regularly, and he sang it here, and it was this song. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. And um, I, I think it's probably, I remember it quite clearly because um, I was leading worship that day and I was sitting among you singing the song with him, sort of learning it. Uh, and then uh, what, the, uh, what happened was, is sort of every worship leader's nightmare moment, basically, when you're sitting there and you hear the words, oh, could the worship leader just come and help us out here? And I was like, oh no, you're kidding me. I don't know the song and I don't know the key. So for those of you who were here, I came up on the stage, I got my guitar, and then for the next five minutes, desperately tried and failed to work out what chord, what key we were singing in, if indeed we were singing in a conventional key. Uh, But um, anyway, it sort of burned in my memory as as this thing. But that's amazing. That's the song that springs to... His mind. That's the song that they're singing in his church in Baghdad. Of all songs, that's the song. Isn't that counterintuitive? Joy, 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 joy down in my heart. What sort of joy is this that is still present and remains in the worst of moments? Certainly not the sort that depends on holidays or presents or the summer. It's deeper. A joy that isn't extinguished by sorrow. In fact, sorrow and joy in the biblical framework, in the way the Bible talks about it, um, and the testimonies of many Christians over the years, sorrow and joy are not mutually exclusive emotions, but go together. One author writes this, we tend to think that life comes in hills and valleys. In reality, it's much more like train tracks. Every day of your life, wonderfully good things happen that bring pleasure and contentment and beauty. And at the exact same time, painful things happen to to you or those you love that disappoint you, hurt you, and fill you with sorrow. Those two tracks, both joy and sorrow, run parallel to each other every single moment of your life. And I think that idea of train tracks is really helpful. Um, There should be a picture coming up. So I want to sort of use that picture and just develop it slightly. Um, But if you imagine that one rail, one of those rails is the ups and downs of life, the twists and turns that we will continually face difficult situations, trials, problems, difficulties, frustrations. That's one rail. But I think what the Bible suggests is that alongside that, there's this other rail that can be a constant, continuous feature in our lives, a joy that can be had and experienced even in the midst of difficult things. That's the other rail there, continuous presence of joy, no matter what else is going on. I think that's the picture the Bible paints. Joy is a constant thing, present through the ups and downs, so that we can sing even in the face of sorrow. So I suppose the question then is, um, how and where do we find that sort of joy? Where, do, where does it come from? How do we get it? And um, there's a book in the Bible um, called Philippians, and it's actually um, it's actually a letter written by a leader of the early church called Paul. And um, he's writing to um, a, a church congregation in the city of Philippi. And it's actually known for being, it's sort of famous for being the most joyful book in the Bible. Joy is the main theme, it's the tone. As you read the letter, it just comes through again and again. If you listen just to even the, the way, almost two bookends of the letter, it begins this way in chapter 1. Verse three, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And in the final chapter, he writes this in chapter four, um, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. From the beginning of the letter to the end of the letter, Paul is just brimming with joy. But the interesting thing, the fascinating thing, the... The counterintuitive thing about this is that he was writing the letter while he was in prison, awaiting uh, his potential execution. So he was waiting for a decision on whether he should be executed or not, which actually eventually did happen. So he's in prison, awaiting a verdict on his execution, and he writes the most joyful of letters. How is it that Paul, in those sort of circumstances, can still have joy? Both the rails of that train track are in play here. Sorrow and joy, suffering and joy. They don't undermine one another, but are both present. And I think there are four things that we can learn about this sort of joy from Paul's life. Things that we can learn about this sort of joy that endures, that allows us to sing in the face of sorrow. He finds it in four things, a perspective, a person, a piece and a purpose. So firstly, I want to look at that perspective. Perspective is actually an interesting thing. Um, you know, the way we see the world or look at the world shapes the way we experience the world. I uh, remember recently um, I took our two boys into the city center. Um, in the summer, I don't know, you might know, but there's like this sort of make this pretend beach. Uh, in the market square, sand and water. And Anyway, um, I took the two boys there, and it had been a pretty annoying journey, to be honest. Um, I, we'd got to the train. It had been late, so we'd been delayed, and so I was a bit frustrated about that. And then um, some of you parents will know this, but um, uh, the, our buggy had this squeak, on the wheel, like every single second you're walking, there's this squeak, 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 squeak. And I was that annoying parent, you know, where, who was just making noise everywhere they went and it was just bugging me, it was really frustrating me. Anyway, we got to, um, the, uh, we got to the, the beach finally and, and I said to Reuben, you just sit by my feet just for a second, I need to take Ezra, who's our youngest, uh, I need to take his shoes off. So um, I literally, I couldn't have taken my eyes off Reuben for longer than, 10 seconds maybe, at the maximum, and um, got his shoes off and looked around, and Reuben wasn't there, and um, I started looking around thinking, oh, he must be nearby, and I couldn't see him anywhere, and, you know, this sort of fear and stress and anxiety all starts to rise in you, and you start to, you're fighting um, this sort of, this panicky feeling, and I started to look everywhere for him. Uh, uh, you know, looking one side of Market Square to the other side, I thought, the ice cream van, that's a good bet knowing Ruben. So he went to the ice cream van, no Ruben there. So I was looking around, getting increasingly sort of concerned started to think, you know, man, at what point do you phone the police with this sort of thing? You've got all these images, all the worst news reports you've ever heard, you know, flying through your mind as you're looking. I grabbed Ezra, I'd left all of our stuff just abandoned in the middle of this beach, and I uh, was looking everywhere for him. Um, thinking, when do I phone the police? And looking for someone who's in charge, I was like, who even runs this place, like, this beach? Whose idea was this? It's a rubbish idea. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I was looking everywhere, and. Um, Eventually, saw this boy emerge um, from a hole that he'd been digging in the sand, and to my relief, to my total relief, it was Reuben. And I ran over and I grabbed him and I took him and I strapped him in the buggy, uh, and, uh, and um, you know, my hands were shaking for ages afterwards. Um, it was a, a, a scary moment, and the relief was just palpable. Um, And as we, you know, walked away from the beach, um, I've never heard a more beautiful sound than the squeak of that trolley wheel. You know, that pushchair wheel was suddenly like, oh, music to my ears. Um, And we went to um, Pizza Express, and honestly, they could have charged me £500 for pizza at Pizza Express. I didn't care. I was like, we're just going to have whatever (laughs) we need to steady our nerves. Um, I was just like, because I found him, and he's here, and he's safe. And it was pretty, any other day it would have been a stressful experience at Pizza Express. Ruben um, did a wee on the chair. He's not in nappies anymore. And it sort of puddled on the floor. And and it started to trickle over to the table of the people next to us. And I just thought, I don't care. I don't care. Because he's here and it's okay. It's fine. And we got the train back and the train was late. And I was like, I don't care. Because he's here and he's fine. My perspective had shifted because of something far bigger and more important than the squeaky wheel on the buggy or the train being late. You know, perspective is a powerful thing. And for Paul, his perspective, his outlook on life is shaped by two massive things. What he knows about his past and what he believes about his future. You may know that Paul, prior to being a Christian, he was um, actually someone who persecuted Christians. He was responsible for the imprisonment and oversaw the death of, of, of a number. He spent his time trying to hunt down and destroy this sort of blossoming early church. And it was during one trip um, on the road to Damascus where he was going in order to persecute Christians, to imprison Christians. It was during this trip that Jesus, um, he he had a crazy experience of Jesus meeting him. You might know from Sunday school, you know that sort of the road to Damascus thing. And it was an experience that he never got over because he knew that he'd been radically forgiven and grabbed by the grace of God. So he looked at his past and he saw that he had been forgiven for everything, for everything he'd ever done wrong. Not because he deserved it, but just because God so loved him that he sent Jesus to pay for his wrong. The psalmist um, writes this of, of that sort of experience, oh, what joy for those whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is out of sight. So looking back for Paul was a perspective-shaping thing. I've been forgiven, I'm loved, I can't believe it. He never got over that encounter with Jesus. He was continually a source of amazement and joy. But looking forward did the same. He was convinced in the same way that God had changed his past, that God had secured his future. It comes through everything, Paul writes. He has this confident hope of heaven and God's plan to ultimately restore all things. In Philippians chapter one, um, verse 21, he writes this, facing death, and he writes this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Death for Paul was not the end. Such was his confident hope in heaven. So he looked forward and he saw heaven as his unshakable destination. And these two things, past forgiven, future secure, Paul talks about as the gospel, the good news of what God had done, that Jesus came to forgive, to bring us back to God, to give a future and a hope. And he just can't get over them. And it's a perspective that colors everything for Paul. Every context in, he's in, he's continually thankful continually joyful there's no darkness for Paul that can quench the light of this joy it's a permanent rail on his track perspective is a powerful thing and i don't mean to say in that you know um oh, i'll just get some perspective you know i don't mean it in that way at all that would be to belittle the things that we go through but all i mean to say is that this perspective was paul's this was his perspective and it was a key ingredient in his joy. And I believe it can be for us, because everything Paul believed to be true of him, the Bible says is true of all of us. There's a God who wants to forgive us, no matter what we've done, who wants to know us, who wants to give us a future and a hope. What a story, what a perspective. That's the sort of thing that keeps you singing in sorrow. You know, maybe today there's an opportunity to be reflective about your perspective. That's quite good, isn't it? I thought that was quite good. Anyway, <clears throat> doesn't matter. Um, but perspective isn't the only thing, you know, as if thinking differently in and of itself was enough. Crucially for Paul, joy is also found in a person. And I think, I think we, we all have this experience to greater or lesser extent. So you must know people in your life who being around them just makes you sort of feel a certain way. You know, you like being with so-and-so because they're just infectious, because they're adventurous, and it makes you feel that way, or fun, and it makes you feel that way. You know, I often think of my dad, um, who passed away last year, but he was so calm, and I used to just feel calm just because I was hanging out with him. For joy, for Paul, joy is primarily found in a relationship with the person of Jesus. It's found in the presence of God. It's almost like a byproduct of time with him because of who he is. And what is like. And the Bible talks about it a lot. In Psalm 16, it says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand pleasures forevermore. In John, Jesus says, These things I've spoken, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Or Nehemiah, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's all relational language. Joy comes from God, from knowing God, from being with God. In another letter um, to another church, he writes, It's the fruit of God's spirit being in you. You know, the fruit of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience. God is a God of joy. And as we spend time with him, get to know him, it's something that sort of can rub off on us, can grow in us as we become more like him. But he, he actually even goes further than that. If you look at, again in Philippians chapter 3, he says this, But whatever gains to me, gain, whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of knowing Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Everything, Paul says, even the best things of life pale in significance to the joy of knowing Jesus. So it's not just a joy that we get from God like a present, but it's actually a joy that we find in God. It's not just from him, but it's in him. He's not just a place we go to get joy, but he is our greatest joy. For Paul, there's no better thing in life than being with Jesus. And so what is it that keeps him joyful in prison? Well, it's because he's not there alone. Jesus is with him, and Jesus is his joy. It's not a joy, again, that's a product of a new house or job or holiday, whatever we tend to hang our joy on, but in a person. It's another feature of the sort of joy, another ingredient of the sort of joy that endures, another feature of having that second rail of track present in our lives. And again, it's available to all of us. The offer of relationship is for all of us, just for us to say, yeah, I I want that, I'd I'd love that. We don't have to have everything together, don't have to feel worthy like we're good enough. It's there for us, it's offered for free. So for joy, for Paul, joy is found in a perspective, a person, but also in a peace. He writes this in chapter 4 of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice and let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I wonder how how peaceful do you feel this morning as you face this new year? Are you heading into it with peace? And I think the lack of peace, the presence of anxiety, fear, stress, is one of the hugest enemies um, when it comes to joy. And the opportunity and temptation to worry is just continuous. You know, it's everywhere, it's a challenge all the time. We like to feel in control, but there's loads of things that we just can't control. We try, we do our best, but we just can't. We um, bought a uh, car seat recently. Um, Sorry, all my stories are kid-centric, it's just the way it is, it's my life. but we went to buy a car seat recently, and literally it cost us so much money, I cannot believe it, because they prey on your worries and your concerns, you know. They say, well, you could buy that cheaper one, but the reality is this other one is a lot safer. Um, you know, it's been tested to some ridiculous extreme, like in a 700 mile an hour crash with a tank, this one's fine. And you're like, and you're like oh, we should probably go for that one, just, just in case, you know. Uh, We should go for that one. And they're like, well, you know, you can't put a price on your child. And you're like, no, you're absolutely right. Anyway, came out with this, like, Ferrari of car seats. It's ridiculous. Um, But we try to control things. We worry and we try to control things, but it never quite suffices. There's always something else to worry about. And it can rob us of joy. I remember even when you know when we were pregnant with Reuben and Ezra, just the, the fear and the worry of like, man, is it all going to be okay? Is anything going to go wrong? You, you know, there's lots of people who have many of you will have had um, miscarriages or painful things that happen, and so you live with this sort of, you know, this sort of slight fear, slight worry, and it and it can it can really um, impact the way you experience joy in that moment, how joyful you feel about that thing. Worry robs us of joy, but peace is the soil, it's the ground in which it grows. I don't mean peace in terms of an external peace, like, you know, everything's gotta be okay, but like an internal peace. You might have watched some of the Olympics in the summer, but um, I don't know if you saw any of the shooting, but they literally, these guys and girls, they have to um, uh, drop, they try and drop their heart rates, reduce their breathing, they try to create an internal calm in order to keep the shot steady. Any movement will throw them off. Whatever the external pressure, whatever the external noise, whatever's going on, they need to be in the zone. They need an internal calm. And that's the sort of peace I mean. And it's the sort of peace that anchors Paul's joy in this letter. His situation isn't peaceful. Looking at his circumstances isn't gonna give him peace. You might be like that, looking at your circumstances, there's no way, there's no peace there. So where does it come from? And he says this, in that that verse, by prayer and petition, bring your requests to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will be with you. Because peace comes from trust. It's in your hands, God, all of it. It's in your hands. I'm not trusting you for an outcome, I'm just trusting you because you're trustable, you're trustworthy, you're good. And for Paul, this is huge. I mean, put yourself in his shoes for a moment. He's facing possible execution in prison, and yet he prays, He leaves it with God, and finds peace. It's the soil in which joy grows. If we can trust that God is in control, that his plans and purposes are ultimately for good, if we can bring our anxieties to him, trust him, then joy will begin to grow in that sort of soil but we do have to tend to it, you know, like creepers in the garden and you have um, some plants that they they creep up and they gradually kill and strangle and you have to keep on doing it over and over again. Worries, anxieties, they sort of creep up on us and we have to bring them to the Lord again and again and again, it says here you are Lord, here it is again, here it is again, praying, trusting, finding peace again. It's another ingredient in the sort of joy that endures. It's another thing that keeps that second rail in place that keeps us singing even in sorrow. So this joy is found in a perspective, a person, a peace, and finally, a purpose. We all know how it feels to have a purpose, um, to have something that we're about, something that we're for. It's when we come most alive. Um, One question, if you are wondering what your purpose is, uh, one question I came across while I was sort of reading about this was this. When you're trying to work out your purpose, what you're about, you need to ask yourself this. What makes you forget to eat and poo? Sorry to lower the tone. But what makes you forget to eat and poo? That's the thing that drives you. And it's impossible to read Paul's letters um, without seeing that he's a man with a purpose. It's on every single page, and it's regularly tied to joy. In Philippians um, chapter one, if you've got your Bible, in verse 12, he writes this. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And because of my chains, jump into 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel. So he's in prison, he's facing execution, and his thing is, I'm so pleased. This Whatever's going on for me, this prison, this thing, is actually serving to advance the gospel. It's letting more people know about the gospel. It's giving other people courage. And then he goes on. In verse 15, and he says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains, but what does it even matter? The important thing is that in every way, from false motive or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. So some people are doing it because they're jealous of him and they don't like him, and he's like, I don't even care, as long as they're preaching the gospel. And um, And then again, he goes even further. In verse 20, he says this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but I will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Whether I live or whether I die, my aim, my main thing is this. Is God gonna be exalted? Is, is, is that purpose for which I'm living gonna be extended? Are people gonna hear about him? He has a hugely clear purpose. He wants the gospel, everything God has done for him, for everyone to be known and he rejoices to the extent that that's happening. It's not a joy, it's a joy that isn't circumstantial. It's not dependent on what he gets or doesn't. It's the joy of having a purpose that is bigger and more important than any other thing. Something that would even forget to make him eat or poo. And it's the overarching purpose to which everyone, if we say we want to follow Jesus, we're all invited into, all called into. This thing of making the life that Jesus offers known. And it doesn't mean you have to work in a church, but it means wherever you do work, whatever you, wherever you go on a Monday morning, you're invited to be more than just an employee, but in Paul's words, to be an ambassador for Christ. That's why perhaps it would be worth next Monday taking cinnamon buns into the office. That's why you might invite someone to come to Invitation Sunday in a couple of weeks or the Alpha course after that. That's why. Uh, you might look for ways in your office office to bring life. You might try to avoid gossip. You might try to um, work hard, be the person who cares. Because all those things are what it looks like to be at work with a bigger purpose. Finding ourselves in this story, in this work, excited about this purpose, is a joy-giving thing. It's just one more ingredient in the sort of joy that endures, being part of a bigger story, a bigger reality, a bigger narrative than just the dream of a comfortable home and a good pension. There's more to that. So joy, just coming to land, joy is God's intention for us. It's not a joy that comes and goes with holidays, possessions, circumstances, or Blue Monday, but it's a joy that's grounded in much deeper, more enduring things. So as we look at our lives, if we think back to that train track image, we don't just see one rail, the ups and downs of emotions, the struggles, twists and turns of life. But we see two, the continual presence of a deep joy that sustains us even in the hardest times. That sort of joy appeals to me. And Paul says it's found in the person of Jesus knowing him. is found in a perspective on life that is shaped by him. It's found in the peace that comes from trusting in him. And a purpose that's much, much bigger than us. These are com- the components of the sort of joy that allows Paul to be in prison, face execution, and yet write the happiest of letters. It's the components to the sort of joy that kept all of those, those Christians through the centuries singing even in the worst of times. It's the type of joy that allows him to say in one other letter, we live as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And it's available to every single one of us. Perhaps we could all find a joy that keeps us singing even in the face of sorrow.